Welcome to this month's Conservation Conversations. I'm Sean O'Brien, the President and CEO of NatureServe. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying biodiversity and working to conserve biodiversity to help reduce the impacts of the sixth extinction. And we use these conservation conversations to touch on all topics related to biodiversity and thinking about these issues and the people involved in con uh, conserving biodiversity. And this month, we're here with Dr. Catherine Fabria who is the uh, Canada Research Chair and Assistant Professor in Freshwater Restoration and Ecology at the University of Windsor. Uh, she came there by a circuitous route, and we'll hear more about that over the course of the conversation uh, about how she came to land up there. Um, welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to, uh, to have you on. Um, I have several things that I want to talk about. You've got quite a varied background in the things that you've written about and done research on. Um, but I want to start with a very sort of classic, more more classic sort of biodiversity conversation. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you, you and your students and people in your lab do is sort of looking at biodiversity in urban areas or mm -hmm. you know, places that are surrounded by people. And we tend to think of biodiversity as like this thing where you need like giant parks or you need right. big landscapes or something. And I want to just dig in a little bit on the idea of like looking at biodiversity in these channelized streams and yeah. urban wetlands that you look at. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation. I, um, I just love, and I know I'm a, trained as an ecosystem ecologist. So I really do think about connectivity from like the most molecular sense up to, you know, the whole planet. And um, the more and more I was doing research on freshwater, which is my passion, I realized that, you know, the places where people live, you know, whether they be our cities and neighborhoods, but also where we get our food, so farms, um, there's this rich connection between human and nature, but not in the way that, you know, biodiversity in nature is often. Um, I guess, communicated or shown to us. And I really wanted to engage that. I think it was really clear that, you know, a lot of the science, especially when I was coming up in training, um, was on more natural spaces and the the draw to look at nature in, in these far off places. But I grew up in a city and I grew up on the, in the Great Lakes and, you know, and I knew that I wanted to understand how I could, you know, help restore and protect where I lived. And, and more and more people are moving and living in cities and we all require food that have been grown somewhere. And that was really a key science gap that I knew biodiversity is so important and, you know, drives and it underpins all of our our livelihood. And, and that's something that we wanted to engage. And rather than kind of going somewhere else to do science, I wanted to do place-based science and really get to know the places that we call home. Which is really great. And uh, if people go to your website and look at the videos on there, it's really fun to watch the scientists sort of wading out in their waders. Yeah. These sort of concrete drains. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Next to the culverts and all of this, but then yeah. finding really interesting things in the, in the water there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, like wearing the scientist hat, I remember really early on as a graduate student, looking at some of the earliest papers like written by ecologists. And, you know, even the, the, my favorite one was the first paper in 1935 by Arthur Tansley that defined ecosystem. And in it, you know, there was a passage that's like everything, you know, things are connected from the molecule up to the whole universe and they interlock, inter, uh, interact, overlap, interlock, those sorts of things. And we need to look at things separately, but, you know, we have to proceed looking at the connection. And, you know, that really 
galvanize my interest, this idea that how do we study connections? Um, and, you know, my first uh, science tool was thinking about carbon and nutrients and how they interact. And that is ultimately the what underpins all biodiversity. And so thinking about how do I do that where I am or in places? And, and I think seeing it through that lens, you see that everything is connected. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet. So you talked about interconnectedness and interlocking yeah. things and that leads me to think about some other things that you've written about in your career. Um, so you've done research in New Zealand and mm -hmm. you think a lot about water and mm -hmm. you've written about um, sort of collective action in science, yes, sort of yeah. the way that science is set up. And so this is a whole series of questions and I'll just try and do one rather than some giant compound yeah. question. Um, so the first question is, you're talking about this interconnectedness and that leads me to think about the uh, uh, the Wangui, is that? Mm -hmm. Tanganui, the Wanganui Wanganui River. River in yeah. New Zealand that has been granted personhood status by the government mm -hmm. there, which led to other countries mm -hmm essentially creating this category for bodies of water and rivers. And I'm just curious about like what, what that means in terms mm -hmm. of the way that we do science and the way we look at the connection between people and their environment. Um, and then also what that means um, in terms of the future of conservation. So yeah. maybe that second part we can get back to because that's a yeah. lot on one question. Well, I think, um, so I, I lived and worked in Aotearoa, which is the indigenous and traditional name for New Zealand, the land of the long white cloud and Te Waiponama, which is the South Island. Um, and, and it was really nice to be there working as a scientist at a time where I was thinking about how do we connect science with people and how do we do science in a way that's ethical and relationship-based, because that was something I really felt was missing from a lot of, you know, mismatches in science and policy or science and management, or when things aren't working and we have the science, why is it not mobilized into action? Um, so the tool of like a legal tool, like personhood status was certainly driven by communities. And I think, you know, in the in North Island, I wasn't, you know, it was driven by local Indigenous communities wanting to really recognize that rivers are living things and uh, a, a relation and someone to something that has uh, that deserves protection. And, and I do see it kind of translating into these conversations globally around how can we reframe our relationship to nature. Um, and so that's kind of the way that I think about it. Um, my t-shirt at the moment says like river doctor, <laughs> what a student made it for me. Um, and it was really thinking about how do we as science, I mean, that's how it looks like in action is how do we as scientists use the, the skills and the tools to, you know, reconnect rivers to their landscapes and people to their landscapes. Um, and how, you know, how do we use and need different types of scientists to try and again, um, relate to water. So it could be looking at, you know, something like monitoring, which allows us to see what is the state of our ecosystem. And then looking at things like nutrient fluxes to see how healthy are things functioning and this relationship of, you know, what is the status of, um, of a river as a living being would kind of reflect not only the biodiversity that's there, but the processes that it supports and the people and the relationships that we need to steward um, our, our watersheds for the benefit of you know, future generations. And I think that's something you know, that when we think about um, how that relates to science, we really have in our group set an intention to try and use science 
to ensure that it is equitable, accessible, and really thinking about future generations. It's taken generations for the health of our waterways, some of the most degraded ones, to get to the state that it's in. Yet we're still trying to find the silver bullet. You know, like we want to solve it right away. Yeah. Um, but it is hoping to reframe that we, if we're in good relationship with with each other and and, and thinking about um, the timelines that it will take to restore some of these ecosystems that maybe by, you know, taking local actions and connecting them to this broader goal and aspiration, um, we can hopefully accelerate it and achieve, you know, improved health in these ecosystems sooner than if we remain siloed. So I think, you know, whether it's a legal tool like personhood status, um, I think it's really important and one of many things we need to do, but it doesn't, um, I'm hoping it inspires scientists to really think about how can they connect their work um, to communities that are implementing it um, and really thinking broadly as science as being one of many things that we need to do to um, to restore biodiversity in this, on this planet. Yeah, so that's, I think that leads me correctly to me thinking about your article that your co-author on, on collective, the collective action, action is needed <laughs> yeah. to build a more just science system. And yeah. so I want to sort of unpack that because it's, uh, um, for the uninitiated, that's a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of words. And so yeah. if you can explain what that means, because I think it's really important in the way we think about science and indigenous knowledge and the rights mm -hmm. of people who've been on the land. And um, yeah, so I'm you, happy to talk about it. Thank okay. you for the invitation. Um, I, I wanted to acknowledge this collective, a group of scientists working in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, we were originally under the umbrella term of kindness in science, and it was an exercise in trying to honor things like our treaty responsibilities as scientists when we gather as a room um, under the New Zealand's founding treaty of Maori and non-Maori, it's like 50% of us were Maori and 50% of us were non-Maori, a range of early career and senior science practitioners, ecology, computer science, complexity theory, all coming together to really understand how is the science system built? Is it really achieving collective societal, you know, beneficial impacts? And, you know, in that context, we really wanted to um, root ourselves in the local context, which was the Aotearoa science system. And, and we could see that it was a lot of big changes that needed to happen to make science more inclusive and accessible and impactful, but also a lot of individual things. And it was really a space for us to have these conversations around like, what is, what should science, like, what is the benefit and impact of science? How can, you know, a biodiversity scientist and a complexity theory mathematician, how do we all kind of engage the system that we're in and shift us so we're moving forward in a way that benefits not only our own scientific you know interests but actually societal impact many of us receive public funding many of us receive you know or do work in community or at least are driven by wanting to do science that's ethical and equitable and impactful so how can we all kind of move forward in the same direction and so that uh, paper that you cited came out in Nature Human Behavior, um, really thinking about, you know, and using nature as an inspiration. I think one of the examples is a flock of birds, you know, like really kind of just, you know, maybe disordered, but highly eventually moving in an ordered state moving forward. And I think we're starting to see shifts like that in our science system. And it requires everyone. It really is this whole of community approach, having conversations about, you know, what are we, what are we asked to, to do with our tools? You know, what is this? You know, here's a, a funding opportunity. How is it, you know, innovative blue skies, but also really lifting communities that need to or are interested in that species. Um, and so I've been I've been privileged to work with um, organizations that have really put those values into practice, including New Zealand's Biological Heritage Science, a national sort of science challenge that has really done a lot of work on design thinking like it doesn't happen 
Mm. You know, just because people love nature, you know, there's just different ways that that we can we need to do those things. And it is really about moving forward together and weaving in the bits that work and some things move sooner than others, but actually still continuing to support you know, early career researchers, um, partnering communities with scientists. So scientists can still do what, what they might uh, be great at doing, but it is connected to, you know, maybe a community that is interested in that science or knowledge keepers that have complementary information. And, you know, if we are really thinking about bioheritage, don't we want all of the knowledge systems as possible, you know, and don't we want those people in the next generation to have it sooner? Um, and so I do think that that's been a really, it's, it's hard work, but I do see so many benefits more than just the science papers that emerge when you really think about um, really moving everyone up together. So I want to talk about one other thing first, but uh, or second, but first I wanted to ask you to talk about knowledge keepers and mm-hmm. pulling together all of the information that we have in order to conserve what we have and to restore nature mm-hmm. uh, and make it available to people. Um, that's a really interesting challenge that we have is um gathering that information in a way that makes it useful to science, but also respects its origins and protects some of the um, essentially intellectual property that comes from that knowledge that goes back from generations of people living on the land. And I'm imagining you've had to navigate a little bit of that. Yeah. And it, it looks so different. I mean, you know, when I first landed in New Zealand, for example, I would spend a lot of time working with farmers. Like it, on the surface, what do we have in common? You know, I, you know, I'm an immigrant to Canada and transplanted um, to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and like didn't know anything about dairy farming. But I think you know, it's it was really important because they are stewarding headwaters, the wet agricultural wetlands and urban wetlands and small drains that are buried. And it was really about trying to find ways to relate to one another and trying to find a common ground for understanding. And they had so much knowledge. You know, we would talk to them about rain patterns. And, you know, certain plant relationships and they would say, you know, they had such precision in their memory around that and we would want to engage that in that in, in, in our experiment. And, and likewise, when we work with indigenous communities um, and that knowledge, it is really about um, my our approach in the lab is really like I don't go anywhere. We're, we're not invited like we aren't trying to um, extract information, but really by fostering a space and listening for the ways in which science can help, then that is kind of, you know, we, we go to community and offer the services that are, that are of interest. Um, and so it is really thinking about building the relationships first. And that's what the farm advisory board group in our, in our lab, as well as the indigenous knowledge circle is really about supporting one another and thinking about what are the needs. And from that, the science emerges, you know, when, you know, if we're constantly thinking about it, this in, this plant, even conversations about an invasive plant, other knowledge systems will say like, well, what's invasive? We might still just need to get to know it. And that's an invitation for us to do an ecological study, like do a biomonitoring and not just thinking about the species, but the relationships to other plants or flow regimes. And I think by being open to the questions and the knowledge and lived experience from people in these watersheds, um, the science question, a more interesting science question emerges than the one that I might've you know, thought and and I think if we embrace and do that um, equitably, it takes more time. But um, you know, I, that those are the things that I think are worth investing in because it really did help things like you know during COVID, for example, we had relationships with farmers and communities before it happened. You know, there was a trust there, so we could continue sampling you know farm fields and going into community and doing water quality monitoring because they trusted that you know we were um, you know working in partnership. 
And I think, you know, there's just so many ways. And then again, when we have the results, you know, talking to them about uh, what we found, they almost validated what we as scientists might have seen or thought or what might have driven a certain pattern. And so I think, you know, I guess that openness to um, and maybe even an element of decolonizing what we think science is doing, like really being open to saying there's different ways to interpret or do or ask or answer these questions. Uh, it allows to not only, you know, a more impactful science outcome, especially, you know, on the ground when we're doing restoration, but also broader relationships that, you know, really leverage and launch us into other new exciting things like mentoring youth. And, you know, we, we, we now have a lab that does more than just aquatic. We've started to do vegetational plant sampling because they live in relationship to wetlands. And, and those lessons that we've learned have been really exciting and it really is helping keep us, you know, rooted to the local biodiversity in the region, but really thinking about these ecosystems as holistic systems that have aquatic organisms and terrestrial ones, humans, you know, and animal beings. Like, you know, we're all in that space. And, and that's been really, I think, the biggest teacher is just by having that openness and really funding and supporting those values, we've been able to have really great science emerge, but also really great partnerships. I want to, I'm going to interrupt myself and pause <laughs> my follow-up question with a different follow-up question first which is um, you mentioned decolonizing science and I've heard people yeah. talk about decolonizing things like bird watching and stuff like that. Oh, right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of define that for people mm -hmm. who may not have heard about that? Yeah. Concerned we about we that? just had a conversation about that actually just in, in lab meeting because we got someone asking what is the difference and there's been such great um, other science practitioners in our global community. Um, more recently, I read like Pollution of Colonialism by Max Liberant, where there's a really nice passage talking about decolonization versus anti-colonialization. And, you know, in its more simpler term, one way to kind of reverse the impacts of colonization would be like decolonization. And the way that it shows up for me in our group is, you know, thinking that we are researchers and, and I'm an academic professor that teaches in the in university settings, one way that that shows up is I've like really intentionally moved towards land-based teaching and making spaces for knowledge keepers to, to share their knowledge. And that, you know, it's no longer the university's role to do that, but actually, you know, returning learning back to the land and reframing that relationship. Um, you know, in some other broadest sense, it is returning land back to indigenous peoples who have, you know, who, who, who were removed from those landscapes. Um, and so it is really thinking about is that what, what does that look like? And so that's one element is like really trying to intentionally reverse the impacts of colonization. And then there's so many other ways that we can address an, um, colonization through anti-colonization. So any other way. So there might be feminist theory and queer theory and, you know, Afrofuturist theory. And I think in our group, we do have a lot of feminist kind of methodologies and feminist ways of leading that um, show up in our group. And so we kind of do different things, but it is that intention around like, you know, do we do we have the knowledge? What are we trying to do here? And what is the best way to honor the different science uh, tools that could be useful and the people that we're engaging? And so it looks like a lot of different things. Um, our projects, for example, you know, we have, again, our farm advisory board and our indigenous knowledge circle who who help advise and walk and we want to walk with, but also means things like co-leadership. So we tend to have projects where it's not just one person that knows it. We have people that have diverse gifts. Um, and so it is thinking about how do we build a team? So it's really more like a nest versus like an empire. And how do we kind of provide the supportive base so that students can learn, but also lead? Um, how is How can we, again, 
decenter the science as the solution and how do we kind of lean towards um, knowledge keepers whether they be you know settler farmers that have known this land and water for generations or you know language holders where there's teachings wrapped up in in words and and species that have been here and what does that tell us about a restoration goal for the region so those are the different ways that it shows up and I think the hard part for a lot of people is that there's not one way to do it and there's not one um, definition, but it is really the work on each of us to think about what is the individual, but also collective goal for, you know, me in the science space or me doing this biodiversity work. And that I think leads to your paper in science or your perspective in science, the heartbeat of ecosystems. And so you've obviously thought about ecosystem health in lots of different perspectives and lots of different kinds of habitats. And I feel like your conversation about, you know, how do we define ecosystem health, right? You say in the paper, you know, we did find human health in opposite, obvious ways, you know, longevity and uh, mobility and things like that, but it's harder with ecosystems. And I think when you think about ecosystems in a more holistic, like less um, just sort of like, oh, there's a forest over there, but it's a forest Mm -hmm. that is in relationship to everything around it and to the people around it, you may get a different answer. Right, exactly. And I think, um, thanks for asking that. I think that's the thing that's been really tricky for restoration is that there's been a lot of tree planting or actions in a watershed, but it's often been disconnected with maybe where in the watershed we might need to do it. Um, because it is the social implementation, you know, communities have to get around doing a lot of that restoration action, but doing it in one place doesn't necessarily guarantee the prompt recovery of species somewhere else, also in that watershed or in that region. Um, and, you know, there isn't a consensus on what what combination of things we should be measuring because it is it is hard work. And, you know, I've had the privilege of doing biodiversity work on a range of invertebrates in these watersheds in the Great Lakes. And, and again, like comparing data sets, uh, people had been measuring things differently or one organization was collecting one bit of biodiversity data, but maybe, and then another organization might've been collecting in others. And so I think really trying to bring back connection to measuring things in a similar way, but also looking at um, organisms and what other organisms they might be in relation to in the similar watershed, those have been really interesting, you know, science outcomes that have emerged by really thinking holistically about, you know, how are these things connected? What is the structure of it? But what ha- what does that tell us about how well this system is functioning? And how can we use that information to, you know, mobilize the, pr- the conservation practitioners who we deeply appreciate to make the choices that they need to do oh, and have at least the best available science? Right. So I think that's really great. And I want to switch gears a little bit because you come at this from a different perspective, I think, because you have um, a different perspective than <laughs> my background, right? Um, but you have an interesting background. You mentioned before that you're an immigrant to Canada, but that you were working in New Zealand. Yeah. But you've also worked in other parts of the world and have experience in other parts of the world. So I just want to tell us a little bit about your, your background and what inspired you to be engaged in thinking about ecology and and conservation work? Oh, thanks. Um, So I I was born in Luzon in Manila, the country we now call the Philippines. Um, I've had the privilege to have different um, just roots there. Um, My my dad's from the Visayas and the island of Cebu and Leyte. And I'm really proud to be, you know, a descendant of those family lineages, but also, you know, European and other places. And um, but I immigrated to the Great Lakes when I was really young, and I grew up on the shores of Lake Ontario in the east side, east end of the city of Toronto. And, you know, the Great Lakes have been home and have taught me so much about, you know, just my place in the world, because you feel very, 
you know, I think, um, you know, I felt like I lived and, you know, my culture at home. I also went to a French school. I grew up in a Great Lakes in a big city. And I think I've always been interested about the in the world, but also felt, felt very connected to water. And when, you know, I came of age at a time where a lot of things were like, you know, whether it's the ozone hole or acid rain or other things, there were a lot of environmental challenges threatening water in our ecosystems. And I was naturally really interested in science or good at it um, and really interested, again, in this the, this, the tension of local and global. So how am I here? But like, there's this bigger, this planet and these things are all connected. What can I do as one person in this, in this city, in this region, um, but also had a sense of responsibility to the planet. So I think, you know, as I went through university, um, I did as many field courses as I could take. Um, I did an environmental science undergrad, but it took me to places like Costa Rica and Barbados and um, yellow Northwest territories. And that really did help launch me into getting to know water around the world. Um, my master's was on the Mackenzie river basin in Northwest territories. Uh, but I did that out of Vancouver. And so getting to know water and again, shifting my perspective on a pretty regular basis has, I think, kept me humble that, you know, we can know so many things about one place and then it changes. Um, and then you grow as, as a scientist, the more things you learn. And I think by the time I finished my PhD, which was back in the great lakes on intermittent streams, I realized just how under appreciated the smallest of streams, wetlands and headwaters were, and that the science was really important in a climate change context, but also that these were the most numerous ones on the watershed. And again, like, you know, these uh, essays like Tansley, this idea that these things are really connected, but we are not protecting them as well. And they harbor biodiversity that's like the microscopic scale and invertebrate scale. Um, and that's what led me to move to the University of Maryland, where I worked with Margaret Palmer, where we were thinking about science and policy and the protection, the legal status of intermittent streams and how things like the ecosystem tools of looking at carbon and those things were so useful, but doing it in partnership with science agencies like USGS and EPA at the time to think about, you know, how, how are these connected? How are, how are we protecting them? And that ultimately, ultimately led me on a path of thinking about how do we restore them? And so the science tools are so vitally important, but um, it was at that point where I pivoted and I realized actually I need to engage the human dimensions as well, because when we think about these smallest streams in urban settings and agricultural impacted ones, it's individual farmers, individual, you know, people mowing their lawn that are making those decisions. And how do I really try to work at that tension of local to global and thinking about individual decision-making and mobilizing that for the benefit of these larger rivers that we care about and this whole, you know, the planet. And, and it is a really tricky space to work in because there's not one way to do it. And there's a lot of science telling us about how we're doing it wrong. Um, and it was really clear that the rooted work in a watershed with community was the best way I could use the science skills. Um, and, you know, coming through it again, like in a different perspective, um, and thinking about inclusion, thinking about whose knowledge, you know, when you're from somewhere, like you don't assume that, you know, this one way of knowing is the only way of knowing. I'm always thinking about, okay, well, that what language and, you know, who, which, you know, what perspective is needed. Uh, and so I think that was the privilege of interdisciplinary training, even though I was always really passionate about water and biodiversity, just knowing that there are other forces um, that shape its protection. Um, it was really important to get to know sooner than later. You are always saying so many interesting things that I have too many follow-ups in my head at the same time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> so one, one quick one on that was, it's really interesting. There's different ways of knowing and different ways of experiencing an area. And so I think about like when I go on a hike, I'm just sort of enjoying the big system and also probably looking at birds. But I often yeah. walk walks with botanists 
who don't mm-hmm. really care much about the birds. They don't look up much. They're looking down. They're looking down. And then you might go on a hike with somebody who's a hunter or a fisher, and they're seeing the exact same place in a totally different way. They're thinking about the way that the habitat interacts with larger species of mammals and birds that are ground nesting instead of flying around. And so I think it's, and then of course, if you went out with a person whose ancestry went back generations on that landscape, they might have a totally different perspective of what they're seeing in the cultural landscape that's in the space that is a natural yeah. landscape. And, uh, I just think that's so interesting to think about. It it's amazing that it, you're incorporating that. Well, and I think that's the thing, like as a site, like it's that humility check. Like we might know a lot of things about this one thing, but actually making space for all the other ways. And like, they don't compete, they actually complement. And yeah. I think that's another intentional kind of, maybe one of the outcomes of taking a decolonial or anti-colonial approach, just like science is important. It's just not the most important thing all the time. Um, and when thinking about the lived histories, like I have the privilege of working right along the Detroit River, and it is also very much, you know, seen as a place and an important pivotal point as part of the Underground Railroad. So there's like a human, you know, there's really rich human um, connections and stories um, of of people who've been here all along and people that have been settled here and people that have been, you know, that have known this place for a long time. And I do think honoring that is maybe the be- the most responsible way I can be a scientist here. And really making the point that, you know, the, the work that we're trying to do is is really to help and to accelerate positive outcomes for, for nature and people. That's great. Um, so the other thing that I was thinking about was sometimes in our field, it's pretty easy to think, wow, this problem is bigger than we can manage. Uh, we have species going extinct at a thousand times yeah. the background rate and climate is changing and you know, all across the world right now, people are experiencing just crazy weather, heat yeah. waves and um, all of this. Uh, but earlier you mentioned two things that 20 years ago, we thought, boy, are we ever going to be able to work our way out of these, right? Right. Acid rain and the ozone hole. Ozone, I know. Were these things that were like, this is going to, like the planet is really going to pot, right? Because yeah. these two problems and... We've actually done Science a helped. Yeah. decent job of I know. working through those. Yeah, it's pretty much in the rear view, but that's kind of what I remember. I know it's, you know, I was really inspiring to see that science was youthful and that it helped and that the collective impact, like policy around the world that helped change those things. Um, so, I mean, that's that's kind of what, what I, I hope our, our story is and the work I'm hoping will speak for itself. It's that this is a way that we were ha- able to mobilize a lot of collective action for good. Um, I think the future generations deserve that. You know, I want that. I, I sort of think about how all of our interactions, what is what is the goal? Is it to, you know, be the scientist at the top of the mountain or something? But it, no, actually, it is to make sure that the stewards and next generations ha- have known what worked and what didn't and how that we did our best to try and um, really ensure, you know, biodiversity was there and nature and the people stewarding it now uh, did the best that they could. And so that's, that's a lot of, you know, I know there's, you know, work that we're doing locally, but it is why I continue to work even globally um, because I do think connecting information is, is probably the one thing we need to do better at, especially in climate change. You know, I think um, I know there was, you know, the IPCC is the climate change equivalent, and I have the privilege of working with the biodiversity equivalent right. of it at best. And, and you know, c- capacity strengthening has been such an important thread of that, which we didn't see in the IPCC. And so I'm hoping that my involvement in the global sphere will help kind of turn the, the tide on things when it comes to biodiversity loss. 
Yeah, but um, of course, Ipex is a great thing that nature sort of thinks about a lot. Um, yeah. You mentioned um, future generations, and of course, you run a lab with a lot of uh, young people who are you're mentoring. And so yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, maybe you're not quite at the point where you're thinking about your legacy, but <laughs> you make you think about your legacy and what you hope, you know, your students will say to their students about you or what your children or your grandchildren might say about your, your, what, what you accomplished with your work and your research. Yeah. Thanks for that question. I spent a lot of time with young people. It's so inspiring. And a lot of times, uh, especially in any university, they're like, Oh, I just saw your lecture, but I'm in engineering. Is it too late? You know, or like, Oh, I'm computer science. What can, what happens? And I, I think uh, more than anything, I really do spend a lot of time, encouraging people in our team and in our network to do the work of getting to know themselves. What are they good at? And one of my, you know, indigenous knowledge and collaborator partners will always kind of ask the youth, what are your gifts? And I think that's a really important question to ask of each of us is like, what are we good at? You know, what are, what are you naturally drawn to? And I think when it comes to, you know, protecting nature and thinking about the next generations, like you just want people to be on a healing path, if they have been disconnected from nature or have, you know, have are experiencing traumas related to, at least in Canada, residential schools, you know, if people are on a healing path, getting to know their culture or their language, or like me, you know, from away, but find myself here, um, whatever path brought them to science, I, I really do encourage people to find and understand their own gifts and understand what they're good at and what might be harder. And every project in our group is very intentionally diverse because it is a lot of this early work. If you ask students or a team, they're like, we interviewed for a very long time. Like I was really just trying to like, here's the project. What do you bring? What, how are you wanting to grow? Spend some time with people in the group, in the field, and, and really try to ensure that, you know, they come out of their time in this group, knowing themselves, knowing what they're really passionate about. And that means creative skills too. We've had some wonderful artists come out of our group. And we've had some wonderful music, you know, just like music and art, art and photography and video. And that's all really showcased in our lab's uh, social media profile. And even the way they've reclaimed social media storytelling for like, you know, that's how they really see their gifts. And I, and I think making space for that. So I'm hoping they see their time with the group and in our projects is a time where they invested in themselves to become better stewards um, for the future. And, and, and I hope that there's not one way like, you know, that it looks like the fingerprint of my, you know, the small time that they might have in my, in our group is maybe little and it won't look the same, but I'm hoping they can draw a thread of connect to that time where they were able to invest in themselves to be, you know, a leader in their own way. And that it wasn't about following my path, but really truly following their own. And so because that question has been asked in your lab many times, <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming you have an answer to what are your gifts? Um, well, I realized that thinking in different ways, you know, I was just, I remember being at a young age and I realized I could think in different languages. It wasn't obvious to me. And I realized, okay, when I'm home, I'm talking to my grandma, we call her Lola and that's Tagalog. And when I go to school, that's French and that's Gromir. And I, I think I just naturally was curious about the world, number one, like uh, there's no set, like, I, I think people have said you have no shortage of questions, um, but also just my ability to really shift to different perspectives is something that I at first thought was really hard. Like, why can't I be the scientist that just does this thing? Because my brain is also thinking about this and that. And when I realized that there is a space and a need for bridging and being a boundary spanner and being interdisciplinary, and that was something that naturally 
came to me, then I was like, okay, I'm just going to lean into this now and just realize that that's helpful. And, and sure enough, um, all of our projects really reflect that. There's some that are focusing on species and some that are thinking about restoration and really being the connective tissue type person is something that over time uh, it's been revealed as being something that I seem to do a little bit easier. Um, always thinking about who should be included or like, you know, just thinking about um, yeah, how do we connect and how do we make it accessible is something that I just seem naturally poised to to do. And that could be overwhelming, I'm sure, for my students thinking they have to do everything. Um, but again, you know, I think by the end of it, the, the projects and their work and what they go on to do kind of speak for themselves. They find their path and they realize things are important and they just need to figure out what their path is going to be. I think that is awesome. And I think it's also awesome that because of that, you're able to welcome so many people into into science and into thinking about how to be part of the solution to the challenges that the planet is facing. And so I, I want to thank you for, for that and for the work that you're doing and the mentoring that you're doing with all the students. And I can't wait to see the, the work that comes out of uh, yeah. the legacy that you have with all these students. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate yeah, yeah. the time with you today. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to this month's Conservation Conversations. Um, remember that NatureServe is a nonprofit organization, and um, you can help us by liking this podcast, giving us good reviews, assuming that you like us. And uh, you can also go to natureserve.org and you can get links to um, Catherine's uh, lab through the, the conservation conversation section of our website. And you can also uh, make donations to NatureServe to support our work to promote the conservation of biodiversity across the planet. And thanks for joining us. And thank you, Catherine. Thank you.